You're listening to Health Beyond Mormonism, an evidence-based health podcast for all the lazy learners who are learning to navigate life after Mormonism. I'm your host, Lindsay Ron, a personal trainer, nutritionist, health coach, and post-Mormon. Come with me as we re-examine everything you've ever been taught over the pulpit about nutrition, mental health, sexuality, and body autonomy, so that you can experience your best health beyond Mormonism. Now let's get into it. Hello and welcome to Health Beyond Mormonism, an evidence-based podcast for Mormon-flavored people who are looking to learn how to navigate their health beyond what they learned from the pulpit. I have a really exciting guest today. I met him on TikTok. He has a really fun account, Skeletor Johnson. His name is Kelly Abbott. Kelly, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience? Hey, uh, I'm Kelly Abbott. I'm a clinical psychologist. I live in California. Um, I've worked kind of all over. I worked right out of grad school at BYU for a few years, and then I worked in a prison for a while, worked in a hospital. Um, currently, I'm working in private practice. And um, yeah, I three kids. I was Mormon for 32 years. I've been out of the church for about 10 years. Um, it's been an interesting journey. Happy to be here. Yay. Thanks for coming. This is so exciting for me because I've been watching your TikTok stuff and it's it's so much fun. It's such a fun mix of, you know, just like random fun, you know, video games and the news and, you know, and some other like your stories of psychology and leaving the church and all that, you know, uh, you're a fun account to follow. you got a fun personality and I'm just really happy to have you here. So the great thing about you, though, is that you are a clinical psychologist and we can really dig into some of the psychology of your experience inside Mormonism and a lot of your advice that you have for people in my audience who are, you know, kind of in between thinking about leaving the church or who have already left the church and are on their healing journey. So um, let's start out with the good stuff. I want to hear all about your time working at BYU. Yeah, gosh. Um, uh, I worked there for two and a half, three years. I actually first worked there as a uh, pre-doctoral intern. So it was my last year of my doctoral work. I'd been going to school in Southern California. I also went to BYU as an undergrad, so I, I kind of mm. knew what I was getting into. But when I interviewed for internships, it was very competitive and BYU um, was sort of low on my list because I was already well into a bit of a faith crisis and going back to Provo felt a, a little Ooh. intense, not always the most conducive place to you know, have a faith crisis necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I fell in love with the place. The counseling center was a really special place. Um, the whole bottom floor of what they call the Wilkinson Center at BYU, uh, right under the food court. So you could go up and get <laughs> you know, maple bacon donuts anytime you wanted. Um, but it was a really interesting group of people. There were some very traditional, devout psychologists, very intelligent, sort of the old guard. And then there was sort of a younger group of psychologists that were very much like myself, very committed to the church, very, um, you know, lifelong members, served missions, had, you know, played by the rules, done all the things, but also had a growing sense of ambivalence and um, tension between things that they felt in their lives, things they felt personally, and what the church would sometimes ask. And for me, it was a very meaningful thing to have a chance to work with a group of people who were trying to sit on that line and to honor both sides of themselves, the faith that they felt 
but also not stuffing down the tension and the sometimes frustration and anger that they would feel. Mm-hmm. Um, for a lot of us, it was a very meaningful thing in a place where nuance was really needed because it can become very black and white at BYU for some people. And there were a lot of students, especially when I was, I mean, I think still not especially, but uh, it was a very big issue at the time that there were a lot of students who felt that there wasn't room for them at BYU. They were made to feel that because of um, their sexual identity or because of the nature of their faith crisis that they didn't belong there or that they needed to sort of stuff some of those things down in order to be considered faithful and to meet criteria to stay at BYU. So it's a very interesting time to be working in the counseling center. People would come not always knowing what they were looking for, just knowing that they felt not good and needing a place to talk about that. And um, I think that the unique position we were in as counselors who weren't looking to leave the church, we were trying to find Mm -hmm. ways to stay in. And so we weren't trying to get anyone else to leave the church, but we wanted people to understand that it was normal to have doubts. It was normal to have fears. It was normal to be frustrated and angry. And that sometimes sitting with those feelings could be a key to strengthening your faith if that was the path that you wanted to take. And other times Mm -hmm. it could be a way to admit to yourself that some things weren't working for you and might need to change. Yeah. How did you make that? How did you make that work being a church employee and having all the you know, the, at general conference, all the talks and everybody about like doubt your doubts and like (laughs) as, as a psychologist and understanding how emotions work and how important, you know, autonomy of thought is and all that stuff. Like how, was there a lot of cognitive dissonance there for you? Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, general conference was twice a year and it was sort of like batten down the hatches at the counseling center. We knew that the week the two weeks really after general conference were going to be overbooked, that people were going to be coming in wondering, because they might have spent six months in therapy, finding these nuanced places where they could honor their sexual feelings that they were having, but also honor the side of themselves that believed in the Book of Mormon and, and in the prophet and what the prophet was saying. And all of that could be so erased so quickly with some of the black and white statements you would usually get one or two talks from someone who was really trying for some nuance at general conference and Mm -hmm. then you get four or five talks that were very explicit in saying god doesn't really do shades of gray god's law is god's law and um the number of suicidal students would go up the number of severely depressed students would go up because what they would do is that they wouldn't be angry at the general authorities or the church, they would be angry with themselves for allowing themselves to entertain any other thoughts because the prophet's word was considered to be absolute. And so it left very little room for them. If anybody was wrong, it wasn't God, it wasn't the general authorities, it was them. And so um, it was a very difficult time to be a therapist because it sort of felt like we were being set up directly in contention with the general authorities, which we didn't want to be. Right. But then how could you not be? Because I mean, I have heard, I have heard stories of like, for instance, like marriage therapists or sex therapists who go against all the therapeutic uh, research and everything and telling, you know, people like just really awful advice about the power structure of their marriages and where the man's place is and the woman's place and, you know, the sexual you know, what people owe each other and, and like just awful, awful advice because they're like, 
what do they call it? More marriage and family services employees or whatever that the church uh-huh. used to have. Um, yeah. how, how do you not, when it comes to like holding down the church's line versus like what your certifications and licenses are having you do, like, how do you ethically side with the church if they're, you know, if what they're saying is like actively doing harm to people and how are people not being like having their licenses revoked? Yeah. I mean, there's a dark history in the church and in Utah of what they call reparative therapy, where they would try and quote unquote fix people with what they called same sex attraction, which is what they called it so that it wouldn't be, you know, they weren't saying gay. They were saying, well, you're just attracted to the same sex, but that's not the same as acting on it and trying to separate Mm -hmm. the action from the feeling. Um, A really dark history of using semantics and careful talk to justify some really nasty therapeutic practices that are now just plainly unethical. I mean, always have been, but are now recognized as unethical. And um, so we often found ourselves directly in contention with what my bishop said, or my stake president said, or Elder Ballard came to our state conference and said, and, um, and that was a trap that would be really easy to fall into. Because the second that you say, well, your bishop is full of crap, uh, which honestly, sometimes you would think, right, times you would think, because often they were. Um, But to say that puts them in between you and another person, and then they're in a tug of war between you and their bishop. And so the way that we would try to avoid that trap was through a a practice that I really believe in. It's called uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the idea that each person um, experiences tension to the extent that there is a gap between what they say they believe and what they actually do. And it happens a lot of time in the church for people where what they say they believe is prescribed for them. So it's on paper. There's really no arguing about what the church is asking us to do. And so people just adopt that whole cloth, but then their actions drift. And that's where depression or anxiety can come in because if they were to look at their actual behaviors or their actual thoughts and desires, often they don't stay right where the church would tell them to. And because God can't be wrong, they would experience shame and guilt and self-doubt, but not really be able to place that feeling. And so helping them to realize, okay, there's a part of you that really values what the prophet said, or that knows that you've been told to support your priesthood leaders. Sounds like there's this other part of you that is feeling a different thing. And sometimes it can be helpful not to say that you're going to choose that over your bishop, but it can be helpful to put it into words and to articulate that so that you can look at it in the light of day and not have it be this dark thing that you're stuffing down in the shadows because it feels uncomfortable to feel something that your bishop wouldn't approve of. And then you can look at it and say, either my beliefs need to change to fit my actions or my actions need to change to fit my beliefs so that I can feel congruent with myself. And for a lot of people, that still meant staying in the church. It meant saying, I'm just going to take some of what my bishop says with a grain of salt and I'm going to pay attention to whether I feel like it's working for me. Um, but I still hold my faith. And for other people, it meant if I'm honest with myself, I've been going to church for a long time and going through the motions because I'm scared to leave. And that realization was often very powerful. It wasn't our goal, but mm-hmm. it was sometimes the the natural outcome for people who found that they were living the church's teachings for reasons that weren't that useful for them, weren't helping them. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would imagine that would be kind of similar to counseling somebody through the realization that they need to get a divorce or that they need to change jobs or they need to disconnect from a toxic family member or whatever. And these, like, these are hard things. And a lot of people would consider a lot of those things failure, but in the end, sometimes they're the, the greater good. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there was a lot of value in helping people understand that they felt a lot of urgency about mm -hmm. resolving the conflict that they felt inside of them, but that it was also okay to sit with these feelings. Um, I, before I left the church, I sat with my feelings for several years. Um, some people sit with it much less, some people sit with it longer, but there's no right answer to how and when you make a decision to leave a marriage or a relationship that is not working or a religion that has defined your whole life. It's a very personal choice and there's no right way to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that reminds me the other day I saw a little bit of your content on TikTok that was really powerful to me. And I know maybe it was meant to be a little bit silly, but you were talking about all the different kinds of crying. Oh yeah. <laughs> and how they're all like good and they're all okay. And they all have their uses. And you're just talking about like happy crying or sad crying or crying during a movie or crying just because you don't know why, or and, you know, and it's funny because like in my own experience, like I was always taught you shouldn't cry unless it was the spirit moving you to cry. Because if you feel sadness or darkness or anything that would cause that urge, like the feeling itself means that, you know, you're not relying on the spirit. And if you're mm -hmm. not relying on the spirit, then you're causing more distance between you and God, which makes that a sin. So your feelings are sinful if you feel like you have to cry. And so going through all the years of life, knowing that you're not allowed to cry, um, I'll just say it wasn't useful to me. And I spent several years on um, anti-anxiety and antidepressants and in therapy and just learning, like, actually, it's okay to cry. In fact, if you feel moved strong enough to cry, and you don't use that as an outlet, that you're actually going to end up worse off. Yeah, um, absolutely. I so think that's, that that's it's profound. It's a thing that it took me a while after leaving the church to realize just how crossed some of my wires were about how I experienced my emotions. And I was someone who talked about emotions for a living. Um, you know, I felt like I had a pretty good read on my emotional functioning, how I how I was wired. But the church does this, whether intentionally or not, the message a lot of people have ended up with, I've found in therapy, working with people and with myself, is that the church tells you that there are right ways and wrong ways to feel emotion, like you were saying. And... And it can get easy to mistrust your own emotions and to mislabel your emotions because there are a lot of emotions that are very innate and powerful that we were told to ascribe to the spirit. Like that's the spirit talking to you. And so people didn't know how to own those emotions personally. And then other emotions that they were afraid of that probably needed to feel that they would stuff down because the church isn't always very comfortable with scary feelings or unresolved feelings or feelings that lead down a dark path and we don't know where it comes out the other end. And so um, I think that one of the biggest challenges, both about finding a place, whether in the church or leaving the church, and then after leaving the church for those who do is 
developing your own emotional vocabulary again, figuring out like this feeling is something I used to call the spirit. Like, what do I call it now? Is it still the spirit for me? Is it something else? When I feel extremely happy, is that God talking to me or is that something that I should trust internally? Um, it can be a powerful experience for people to kind of reroute and rewire some of those, or at least understand how they're wired so that they know, mm -hmm. you know, when tears come, like, what does that mean for me? You know, when I laugh, what am I, what, what do I find funny now? Right. Uh, yeah. I had read a book that was as impactful to me as any book I've ever read. And I, I don't remember what it was called. I'm sorry, but it was about anger. Like the whole book was just about the emotion of anger. And as I read the book, I felt as much resistance to that as I would have felt about somebody saying that sex is okay. Yeah. Like, there is so much like emotional repression because, you know, contention is of the devil and, and to find out that anger is actually a healthy emotion and that there's a purpose for it. It's meant to drive change and to give you that energy to take action. Um, and that you're not wrong and bad or evil for feeling a feeling. Yeah. Just mind blowing. I think that is one of the most powerful things that I experienced in leaving the church was accessing that anger and sometimes just having no choice, but to sit with it, learning to sit with feelings. I don't think we sit with feelings very well in the church, or at least my experience was that people wanted to move on from feelings very quickly, unless it was a very specific feeling that was mm -hmm. being, we were being told to feel. But I also find that that anger is one of the things that becomes most uncomfortable for people as they deal with their families and friends, as they leave the church. That's the the assumption is I, I've found that family and friends assume that you're angry and that anger isn't comfortable for them, even as you're learning to be comfortable with it. Um, and my family, I was lucky, you know, I, I'm from a big family. I'm the oldest of seven. Uh, about half of my family has left the church, about half are still in, but we've always been very close and supportive. There was no, um, you know, nobody turned their back on me or anything like that. But over the years, that has been the thing that when there's tension or conflict, it's because there's a general conference and some thing is said that I know is going to hurt people that are vulnerable and that mm -hmm. is going to take away space that they need to, they might be scrambling to stand on the last little bit of common ground that they have between the different sides of themselves and their faith. And that is steadily being erased sometimes by general authorities who really want to erase that gray area. And allowing myself to feel anger at that and encouraging others, if they feel anger, to allow themselves to feel that can be very threatening to those who are not really in a place to look at that or who don't feel that conflict inside. Right. Well, and then I think also to people who are coming from inside the church and they've been taught that people who've left the church can't leave the church alone and that they're like trying to, yeah. you know, they have intentions. And so like assuming that the anger feelings that you would be feeling that really are for a just cause are directed at them yeah. which is not true right yeah it's a very complicated place to exist where you can i know that for me personally it's a very complicated place to exist where you have had to learn to juggle these complicated emotions and i know people who are still in the church that i honor and value very much and i know they're good people that are trying to live mm -hmm. their best lives, but that doesn't change the fact that there are people who have died, people who have committed suicide, people who have 
become severely depressed, who've gotten involved in drugs and other issues because they couldn't find a safe place to just experience the emotions they were feeling. And the church kept mislabeling those emotions for them, telling them they were doing it wrong. And so they, one of the things I saw most at BYU working with people was that they were told to blame themselves. Well, if, if you're gay and you don't want to be, uh, are you saying that God isn't powerful enough to change you? Or are you saying that God isn't powerful enough to help you to not act on those feelings? Maybe you are gay. Maybe you can't change it, but you can choose not to act on it. And if you aren't able to stop yourself, that's certainly not God's fault. And so the implication was, this is your fault. And so they experienced a different kind of anger, which was just inwardly directed. And I saw it over and over again, people who were just self-harming or um, not going to class because they were so sure that there was something broken in them because their mm-hmm. bishop or their state president was telling them you should be able to manage this. And if you're not, then it's not God's fault. It's somebody else's and it must be yours. Right. And I, you know, and you, you, I don't need to tell you how damaging it is for your mental health to be told that you're broken. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when it's just not true. I mean, um, so many people were doing so much, um, they would get up and read their scriptures an extra half an hour every day. They would sort of make these bargains with God. And what we would see a lot of the time at the BYU Counseling Center was this kind of religious flavored obsessive compulsive disorder where they would sort of tell themselves, well, if I messed up today, if I, if I looked at pornography, you know, I might've gone a year without looking at pornography, but if I slipped up today, it must've been because I only read my scriptures for 29 minutes instead of 30. And if I read for the full 30, then God would have blessed me with the strength. And so the the harder things got and when things became untenable for them, that was how they would explain it away. They would say, well, I had an impure thought walking down the street the other day. And so, you know, that's a sign that the BYU Honor Code should probably be stricter so that I don't have these thoughts. You know, people aren't wearing these clothes that give me these thoughts. And um, I just need to do better. And then God will be able to pour out the blessings that my bishop is promising or waiting for me once I'm worthy of them. Yeah. So in other words, you just need to try harder. Yeah. And with, figure it with out with no end in sight. Always try hard. But the thing is, I mean, even even if you're not suffering from anything like that, like coming from inside Mormonism, you still always have to try harder no matter what. Like you can never read your scriptures enough, <clears throat> excuse me, or pray enough or do enough of your home teaching or whatever. Right. Like there is no end. There's no satisfaction to all the things that you need to do to satisfy like whatever goodness requires of you and so if you're in a place where you're like in sin or you know feeling Uh like you're struggling with those kinds of things it's even worse like there's even more no end to it yeah absolutely there really is no setting in the church where it's like okay good rest for a minute you're doing all right you're on target like it's always one more thing and, and, you know, I, I think that is a way that they keep people actively engaged in the church. Mm-hmm. There are some people that that is just their natural setting is to always be looking for what's the next goal. But mm-hmm. there are a lot of people for whom that doesn't work, for whom that breeds this sense of never being good enough and of always seeking the approval of someone who is always moving the target on us. And it's a very difficult way to exist, especially when you add in some aspect of your identity that is incompatible with the church according to what the church is telling you and so you feel like that much more pressure to prove yourself worthy of of god's love and of the church's approval 
Right. And it's, it's so hard. And like, you know, speaking from my own experience, like as, as a health coach, working with people who maybe have, you know, had to go through the repentance process or who are like LGBT or whatever, um, the amount of shame and the amount of guilt and the amount of like, there is no end to the tunnel. Like there's no end to the repentance. There's no end to that. Um, and the level of shame involved in the feelings that they're feeling, um, not only like impacted like their mental health in very negative ways, but when it comes to like their physical health and their ability to do very simple things like, uh, feel hunger signals and eat when they're hungry or feel what it feels like to be tired and go to sleep when they're tired, just basic You know, once you distrust feelings that are as normal as breathing, such as your sexuality, you distrust your sexuality feelings, then all of a sudden you can't trust emotional feelings and you can't trust hunger signals. You can't trust any other physical feelings happening inside your body. Yeah, I I really agree with that. And I think that one of the scariest things about how this tends to happen with people when they go to their bishops or their state presidents is that the bishops connect all the dots with the last few and there's sort of this understanding that people will connect those last few dots for themselves and they'll do it in the most negative way they can that they the bishop doesn't have to tell you you're bad the bishop just has to walk you up to that and then you'll decide oh well i must not be doing enough i must need to do more and Mm so some of the most common ways that that expresses itself is through self-denial and people will start restricting their eating um, or they'll start restricting their sleep like i just need to stay up and read the scriptures longer i just need to be more holy Mm -hmm. Um, and it leads to these patterns of wide swings between extreme restriction and then sometimes binging um, on a number of things you know they will go to extreme lengths to avoid looking at any kind of pornography they will take the internet off of their computer which means that they have to go study at the library instead of being able to do their homework in their dorm because Mm -hmm. they don't trust themselves to have access to a tool that everybody in the world has. And so they will make their lives very restricted and small um, in an extreme attempt to deny themselves access to the things that they think are causing the problems. And then when they crash, they crash a lot. They, you know, they stop going to class and they stay home and um, they've been pornography for five days in a way that does start to border on unhealthy behavior because they've denied it for themselves so long. And then they feel so bad when they mess up once that they just say, well, now I'm lost. And so they, they kind of start swinging between extreme behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's what I've seen, like in the, like the health and fitness world, you know, like eating disorders and things, binging is almost always caused by restriction um, in one way or another. And even just, you know, these matters of just like falling off the wagon, there's a presupposition that there was a wagon in the first place. Absolutely. You know, so that's the church has a very, um, they've sort of found a lot of utility in alluding to the 12 step program that has worked really well for Alcoholics Anonymous, which works really well for some models of addiction but it has been generalized and I think in a really unhealthy way where they've started pathologizing and treating as an addiction behaviors that are um, typically not, um, or at least aren't happening to a degree that would, that would justify 
diagnosis with an addiction. And I think mm -hmm. that the church has sort of implicitly when things like reparative therapy, when they could no longer try and fix being gay, um, this is what they resorted to instead was to sort of tell you there's a problem with you and you need to get treatment and you need to admit that there is an addiction that you can't handle on your own. Uh, you need a higher power to help you through that. And so at BYU, we saw just dozens, hundreds really of students. Our biggest program in the counseling center was our sexual concerns group is what it was called, which was mm -hmm. where bishops would send people who would come to them saying, you know, I, I masturbated last week or I looked at pornography or I had, uh, I made out with my girlfriend and we touched each other inappropriately. They would say, well, you have a sexual addiction and the only cure is to go to this group and they will help you to cure your addiction or at least to manage it. Um, and for those of us in the counseling center, we were not interested in labeling hundreds of students with normal sexual impulses as addicts, mm -hmm. but it was a fine tightrope to walk where we couldn't say your bishop is full of crap. But we also didn't feel ethically justified in saying, no, you're right. You masturbated once last year, which places you well below the national average. But sure, you're an addict. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it was a very, again, challenging, but I think rewarding process to help a lot of students find a place in the middle where they could say, it's not that I am abandoning my faith, but I can also acknowledge that I'm a sexual person and that it's not wrong to have sexual feelings. And there is a place in the middle where I can catch my breath and figure out what I want to do with those sexual feelings without mm -hmm. uh, beating myself up for having them in the first place. Right. Which has got to be really, really difficult to be sharing that message in a way that people will accept it, considering how very direct the, the, the church's teachings are about that kind of stuff. Yeah. And there are so many anecdotal things. I mean, I, I should say that as hard as it was, I mean, there was a unique challenge for young men. We've got a lot of freshman boys that were 18 years old, getting ready to go on a mission. This was before they had lowered the age mm -hmm. and were being kept from going on their missions and they were challenged and their, their bishops would punish them and say, you have to stay home for two years. You can go when you're 21. But it was accepted as a common thing that boys have sexual feelings and that it was so much more painful. And I saw it challenging for the two or three young women who had the courage to go to their bishops and say, I'm having sexual feelings. And I say courage because for them, it was a scary thing to do. And then their bishop would rake them over the coals and send them to this group where it was three women and 25 young men. And the women on top of talking about these normal sexual feelings that everyone has had to contend with the Mormon culture of, well, men are the one with sexual feelings and women um, don't experience it the same way, which was um, constantly a theme in these groups that men were shocked that women would have sexual thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. And women were in this position of having to sort of explain like, well, yeah, <laughs> we do. Or women were in a position of finding out it's okay. I thought I was the only one. This just is not a thing that my mom ever talked to me about or that my young women's teachers ever talked to me about. All they ever told us was don't date a boy who looks at pornography. Um, right. Tell me what to do if I looked at pornography. And um, so just a lot of really unique paths that people took to picking up a lot of shame and self-hatred and um, unwinding that and disentangling it a bit was really powerful for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So um, I did want to ask you, like, from the professional side of things, like we hear 
we hear terminology uh, like ecclesiastical abuse or religious trauma. Like we hear that in like the ex-Mormon, ex-evangelical world a lot. And can you touch on like, is there a difference between trauma and abuse? And if so, like, is there a difference in the way that you would like go about your path to healing from those situations? I think that's a really good question. There's a lot of psychological terms that get thrown around sort of um, synonymously and that sometimes get a bit watered down or, or confused with each other. And it's understandable why, but um, there are obviously so many cases in which there is very specific abuse where a bishop, you know, stepped over the line and there was some sort of sexual contact or inappropriate sexual talk where a bishop abused their power. And that is clearly abuse. That is a, a kind of trauma that, um, you know, usually would benefit from somewhere to talk about it, some treatment. I think there are, on top of that, so many more cases where people think, you know, they hear those stories and say, well, my bishop was never specifically inappropriate with me, but still have these memories of, I was brought to the bishop's office. My mom, you know, found a dirty magazine under my bed and hauled me into the bishop's office and dumped me in there and I didn't get to come out until I told the bishop what the name of the magazine was and what I looked at and what I was attracted to about it. And then the bishop told me I couldn't take the sacrament for six months. And so I had the shame of sitting in sacrament and not being able to pass the sacrament. And, uh, you know, all of these things that were these little micro traumas, so to speak, these things that everybody knew and you would be treated differently and your feelings about yourself would change. And all of that stuff is a kind of chronic trauma um, that needs to be acknowledged and processed because it it adds to these feelings of unworthiness that are difficult to unload. Even after you leave the church, they don't automatically go away for a lot of people. There's still this hovering feeling of there's something wrong with the way I feel things or see things. And acknowledging that even for people who had a nice bishop or a well-intended bishop, there was something inherently wrong with that process of forced confession or of um, public shaming for things that came out of normal, healthy sexual impulses. What normal, would you say? Uh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Is there, um, is there a difference between trauma and just like pain? Yeah. And I think the word trauma, we need to sort of reserve that term in some ways for, you know, we talk about something like post-traumatic stress disorder for a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, technically the trauma that's experienced needs to be something that was life-threatening. Um, it was life and death either for yourself or that you witnessed it. You saw a shooting or people were at war. And so a lot of times people use the word trauma like, oh man, I was having trauma memories from my science test when I was in seventh grade. Or I was re-traumatized about, you know, I walked by a prom the other day and I remembered how, um, you know, I walked around with my shirt untucked at prom. Those are things that we sort of label a trauma. And I think colloquially, it's okay to call it that. I think the shorthand mm -hmm. that we're using is to say, this is a thing that has stuck with me and that impacts me and that I feel shame about, or that I feel fear. There's stuff that has stuck with me over the years. And so it might be best to say that there are degrees of it. And we need to make sure not to equate it with the kinds of trauma that you know somebody who is sexually assaulted goes through or somebody who is held up at gunpoint or goes to war and is shot at or who watches somebody, you know, die, there's, there's a level of, of trauma there, but there are so many different ways that we experience these little nicks and cuts 
and memories that for whatever reason stay with us and become part of our story and define parts of who we are and mm -hmm. i think that's as good a word as any to to describe that uh pain i think is another one but just keeping in mind that the thing that makes those part of our story is that we we incorporate them into our story and they take on somebody else might hear it and say well that wasn't that big of a deal and that's always very invalidating to hear like well why was that such a big deal why was having to sit with your bishop so scary if he loved you and you knew he wanted the best for you what was so wrong with that and it is the subjective experience of it you know together with the context of the situation and the way we were raised to be respectful of authority uh, it's an invitation to understand the context of why those experiences were as powerful for this, us as they were they might not have been life-threatening or um or dangerous but they have stuck with us for a reason and it's useful to try and understand that reason mm -hmm. and so i i have a little bit of background in neurolinguistic programming um i know it's kind of like pseudo psychology but no, the 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 language that you use matters a lot and when it comes to beliefs of your identity uh using like i am statements or i have statements and so saying things like i have trauma like i'm carrying trauma with me i was traumatized um places a, a identity that um some people would say like once you've placed that as an identity on yourself it's unchangeable and now you're stuck with the trauma forever so in neurolinguistic programming you would work with people to try to change the language around like you know not that i have trauma but that something traumatic happened to me and yeah. i have seen i have seen you know changes in the way that i interact with this memory you know but it doesn't mean that I have trauma. It it just means it's a thing that happened that I'm trying to work through. Is that something that you've seen makes any kind of a difference for people? Yeah. In fact, that's a big part of acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, it's the idea that there are things that take up our whole field of vision if we let them and sort of feel like they define us, when in reality, they're an aspect of our experience. And saying, I am happy instead of I'm having the experience of feeling happy that makes it a thing that leaves us in the driver's seat versus a thing that can take over the driver's seat. And I, I agree very much with what you're saying. And sometimes helping people to realize that sometimes feelings or memories or aspects of our story present themselves to us as though they are all encompassing or um, defining of us as, as a person that we can sort of recontextualize and pull the camera back so that it is in context, but not um, our entire field of vision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is, this is kind of something that has crossed my mind about like the ex-Mormon spaces. Like you're, you're in the ex-Mormon spaces some, and in some ways, uh, you know, sharing the stories and sharing the, the anger can be like very healing and very validating and stuff. But in other ways, a lot of times I feel like it kind of can become an echo chamber where you have a whole set of people who are being defined by their trauma and sort of just, staying there and encouraging others to stay there is that something that you've seen or noticed at all yeah very much um i think it's you know it's not a hot take to say that sometimes the exmo spaces sort of recreate the dynamics that a lot of us were trying to escape getting out of mormonism there's a lot of um 
sort of group mentality that can set in because we do all have a lot of things that we're working through still. It's not an immediate, you know, it's not an instantaneous process leaving the church. And so I think there's a lot of utility in having those times where we all get together and we sort of get angry and we let out some of that stuff and we commiserate and we realize you had that too. And we also realize mm-hmm. there's some stuff that was unique that nobody else experienced. Um, I think within certain limits, that's very useful. Um, but it does sort of end up taking up all of the oxygen in the room if you're not careful. And it ends up being very backwards facing instead of forward facing. So to me, the most important thing is to allow feelings to happen as they come, because I'm surprised constantly by the things that bring up anger for me or the things that bring up sadness or the ways that a hymn will come on that I loved and I'll cry because I miss singing hymns in church, you know, in spite of everything. I, mm-hmm. I miss singing hymns with a group of people and allowing that to be contradicting and allowing it to be messy and accepting the parts that feel good and being angry and then putting the anger down and not feeling like that's my new identity. Cause I, I do think that does happen to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, okay. So do you have anything else to say about your time working at BYU, working with the kids, helping them through the stuff, or is it time to move forward in your story? Um, I would just say that I, I was constantly surprised by how many different kinds of people end up at BYU. So many people from different backgrounds, and I was never able to predict who would have the crisis of faith. Sometimes it was the kid from Farmington, Utah, his dad was state president. Sometimes it was the kid from the East Coast who didn't want to go to BYU, but his parents said they'd pay for it. You know, Mm -hmm. there's just so many different people who end up at BYU and different combinations of events lead to a conflict of faith. And there's no script for that. And BYU has, I think, sort of intentionally developed a culture of they call it maybe keeping an eye on each other or being your brother's keeper that mm-hmm. actually looks like people sort of watching each other and being a bit judgmental when they see somebody quote unquote straying off the path, letting go mm-hmm. of the iron rod and walking towards the great and spacious building. There's so much language for it. And I think that if there's one thing that I could change in church culture, it would be that that there would be room for people to have that because I think that so many people wouldn't ultimately leave if they felt like it was safe for them to ask Mm -hmm. those questions and to be scared and angry and afraid for a while. Um, There's so much more that could be done without changing the doctrine, you know, and I, for me personally, I have problems with the doctrine as well, and it wouldn't be enough to bring me back. But I think there are a lot of people who don't want to leave who end up leaving because there's no room for them to even ask the questions. And, um, I'm I'm grateful that there's a place like the Counseling Center that doesn't try to subvert BYU, but does try to make a place where there's a little ledge to stand on for people that are going through that, because it can be a scary thing to go through alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I'm glad that you got to be a part of that, too, because I'm sure without you and without, you know, your, your uh, cohort, <laughs> that yeah. uh, a lot of those kids may have been left feeling like they just don't have any resources at all. Yeah, I think that's that's true. I, I still know and love people working there and, you know, 
my hat is off to them. I was doing it for three years, felt so overwhelming. I was so burnt out. And so um, it felt very rewarding. But when I left, I was just like, I don't know if I could have done it for another day. And there are people that have been doing it for 20 years. And I think it's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's move on because at some point you left BYU and a bunch of stuff happened in your life. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, as I said, I'd had a, you know, my faith crisis was already kind of in full bloom when I went to BYU. And I sort of thought, I'll hold my breath and do a year. I like these people. And then really fell in love with the work and for quite a while was very committed to staying there and having that be kind of the work of my life. You know, I had three kids, mm-hmm. um, had been married for 10 years. I didn't know in my head, leaving the church still didn't feel like an option. And so this felt like the most meaningful way to stay in the church and honor kind of where I came from, but without compromising my beliefs about, especially things like LGBTQ issues. Um, politically, I was always, you know, more liberal than most church members, but still wanted to honor that. Um, along with my faith in the church mm-hmm. and a number of things at BYU just made it very hard to do that. Uh, the most in your face thing was how, you know, gay and lesbian and bisexual students were treated at, at BYU. Um, and there was a culture of sort of minimizing the bad things that happened there. There are as many sexual assaults and, and um, campus rapes as there are at any other school. But because of where we were in the counseling center, we'd become aware of those. And then we would see how they would sort of actively be suppressed, how stories would be kept from coming out, or in the worst cases, how the victims would be uh, further victimized by being punished by the honor code office, because why were you out at 1130 after curfew? Or why were you in that apartment when you shouldn't have been? Um, And it was just a, a really awful, awful thing. Um, there's really just, I mean, there were some things that you could sort of say, well, this is what they believe and they're doing the best with those beliefs. And then there are things where you just like, show me where this is justifiable. And, um, you know, often what it felt like it came down to was a sense of, we have donors who donate because they see this as a safe campus that it's safe to send their kids to. And if the actual statistics got out, our donors would go down and we have to protect our donor base. So even when it was, you know, sort of pragmatic like that and not Mm -hmm. based on, you know, theology or anything, uh, not even when I I would say that it was just gross in a different way. Um, Yeah. It just felt quite, quite awful. And the more that I was exposed to the ways that the honor code office would work, um, the worse it got. And, you know, it's been a fairly public story over the last 10 years, how that honor code office was, was quite militant in looking for people who were breaking the rules. And, um, you know, I was the subject of scrutiny towards the end of my time when it became clear that I was um, planning on leaving and I was going to be getting divorced and leaving the church. There was just sort of a, um, a process by which people were subjected to scrutiny. And it was done with a, a really bullying set of tactics, a sort of, you know, we can and will look at whatever we want about you and you know you're we would like to remind you that you have um duties to the honor code office and you've signed a pledge that you will uphold the honor code just so many different ways that people were made to fear for behaviors that were um certainly not 
not worthy of scrutiny. So right. uh, I left with a pretty bad taste in my mouth. And it was, you know, I went from feeling like, I don't know how I could ever leave the church to, I don't know how I can stay. And I think that for me, it was a realization that I hadn't been happy in the church for quite a long time. I'd been going out of a sense of guilt and pressure and shame. I started to experience physical symptoms in my body where I would be fine all week and then Sunday would come and I would have real physical pain. I would get stomach aches. So basically my body was making me sick as an excuse not to go to church because uh, I couldn't even admit to myself that I didn't feel comfortable there. And so once it clicked for me, um, that path became pretty clear and it was just a matter of doing it. And for me, it meant the end of my marriage. Um, you know, it was a difficult and long process and she and I are very good friends today. We're good co-parents. Mm -hmm. uh, this ended up being the right path for both of us. Um, okay. She stayed at church for many years and is now, um, she's now kind of on her path out of the church. Um, and so I think that was what leaving BYU and the church looked like for me. It was sort of a hard reset of my whole life. And I don't know that I recommend that. I mean, sometimes that's just what it is for people where mm -hmm. it's a dominoes. It's a set of dominoes that start falling where you realize you don't believe in the church anymore. And that has an impact on your marriage or your relationships, or it has a bearing on your job, which in my case, I couldn't stay at BYU if I wasn't going to remain a member of the church. And right. so my whole life basically reset itself, you know, in the course of six months. And it was quite, um, you know, I don't use the word traumatic lightly, but to have your whole set of beliefs and your values and everything that you thought you knew what was going to happen to you after this life, I'm going to be with my family to have all of that suddenly gone. And there's nothing immediate to replace it. It's a real vacuum of purpose and, um, and existentially it was pretty terrifying, I think. Um, so a weird couple years figuring that out. And I think everybody's first couple of years tend to be pretty weird when they leave the church. Some people are kind of like shot out of a cannon and they can't wait to try all the things that they never got to try. And there's mm -hmm. some real power in that of sort of showing yourself that you're not as fragile as you were made to believe. And other people stay, you know, sort of very cautious. And again, there's no right way to do it. But I think it's a very interesting time when you're trying to sort of find something to fill that hole that is left by where you pulled the church out of yourself or where you tried to. Um, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, did, have you noticed, you know, when you're talking about that void, people walking out into the hole, um, like when people talk about, oh, they went off the deep end. Um, and I kind of view that as like this way to um, sort of like discredit people who have left the church. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, have you in, in people going away from the church and then like experimenting with all the things, all the new things, have you seen people um i guess you know to redefine going off the deep end like have you seen people going and doing like dangerous behaviors or unhealthy behaviors or have you seen people mostly sort of just experimenting with kind of what the adult population outside of the church already does normally yeah i i think that for most people, it's a pretty normal set of things like what's coffee like? Oh, what's alcohol like? Can I drink? Um, mm -hmm. Should I try smoking weed? Should I try smoking a cigarette? You know, is porn really that bad? What about sex? Am I going to wait till I get married again to have sex? I mean, these are the standard questions that I think people 
grapple with. And I think there is real power in realizing that what made you not do those things before for a lot of people was that you were told not to and that you were told that there was a God that was kind of watching you and you didn't want to upset God. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of people, that's how they start flexing that muscle is to say, well, I'm going to try it and see what happens. And that's when I think there are a few things that come into play. One is that uh, personally, what I found as I sort of experimented with those things was that um, I benefited from being in my thirties as opposed to my twenties, because I, you know, I had kids and I, I had a bit of a desire not to go too far into things before figuring out how they worked for me. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of people who are younger and also people, you know, the same age and older who sort of throw caution to the wind and are just sort of doing things in reaction to leaving the church, perhaps, which isn't inherently bad, but there isn't a natural um, bumper that keeps you from bumping up against the edge of things. So right. what I found is that we don't have a lot of us who leave the church, a set of knowledge about how those things work. And there are other people who sort of learned to drink in their twenties or they learned how to have safe sex in their twenties, you know, in college when, when, you know, some of us were serving missions and starting families and mm-hmm. things like that. And so there's practical knowledge that people don't have about, you know, when to get tested for STIs, you know, when you enter a new relationship so you can, you know, make sure that you're not carrying anything with you into a new relationship or, um, how much alcohol is too much alcohol uh, mm-hmm. for you. And there's kind of two sides of the coin. One is that there are people who really have gathered that information over years and you're sort of learning it all at once. Mm-hmm. And then there's also this belief that people tend to have, and I really felt this of where it was like, I don't know when it's appropriate to drink. I don't know when it's appropriate to have sex. And there was sort of this feeling like everybody knows, but me. Mm-hmm. And to some degree that was true, but it was also true that it was the wild west and that everybody had their own answers to those questions and that my job was to find my own answer. And the church hadn't really equipped me to really find my own answer. It had given me the answers and said, you know, believe this and pray until this feels right. And it was a new muscle to flex to be like, I have a thousand options and I have to pick the ones that work best for me. And Mm -hmm. that's sort of the battlefield on where, um, that was negotiated and it's a, it's a bumpy ride for some people, I think. Right. And I would agree with that. I mean, that's part of the reason why this podcast exists really is to give people that pad to land on, you know, that's great. Um, Cause I agree. I, I think that most of the time, you know, when kids are teenagers, they're learning, you know, like they say, give your kids a smartphone while they're still a teenager at home under your supervision so that you can help them learn how to interact, interact with their cell phone. And then when they're in college and they're learning how to drink, you know, they're, they're sort of still in that insulated place, like between childhood and adulthood where like their friends are learning to drink with them. Everyone's kind of together in this learning process and they're, you know, and the adults in their lives are able to give them advice and, um, but I think the important part too, though, is that they're growing up learning the process of how to learn this stuff. And that's really the thing that we were sort of deprived of in the churches that we never really learned the process of how to learn, how to interact with these things. You know what I mean? Yeah, very much. And so there's sort of an inherent mistrust of our own instincts because we used to wait for the spirit to tell us what to do. And Mm -hmm. now we don't really have something to replace that except 
do your best and learn from your mistakes. And that is um, not, it's not a one-to-one comparison. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's a good process. I mean, it's a good thing to learn to trust your own instincts, but um, there's not much of a safety net sometimes for some of that. And I benefited from having a few people that I could trust where I could say like, Hey, I don't really know which end is up and I need somebody to tell me if I'm starting to, you know, careen off the road here, can you, can you be one of those people? And I, I was lucky to have that, but I think it's a very scary process. And sometimes we're using some of those new things to try and fill that hole. And I think it's a different answer for everybody, but what I learned through a lot of different things was that there is no filling that hole. That's a hole that's going to stay there. And that's not a bad thing necessarily accepting that nothing will ever be the church. And I, I wouldn't really want something to fill that exact hole because it wasn't a healthy hole for me. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's a process of living with who I am and who I became in the church, both for good and for less good sometimes, and finding ways to maximize and develop my strengths beyond that and being comfortable feeling that ache sometimes that that hole leaves and that anger and all the feelings that come with having a hole in you that that came from that. And it's like a, a phantom limb almost that you feel sometimes. Yeah. Wow. So did, did all of those feelings, um, did all of those end up presenting in any kind of like mental illness or symptomatic in any way, or was it kind of more like a journey? Um, I think for me, the prominent feeling was a lot of shame and guilt and self-doubt and it manifested as depression at times. I definitely have anxiety that is just sort of my baseline emotion sometimes that I've had to learn to manage. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that the thing that surprised me was learning that I suppressed a lot of things. There was stuff that I didn't know I was suppressing that was sort of clenched like a fist way down deep, um, pretty Mm -hmm. subconscious stuff, I would say. And in my case, and I I don't want to propose this as the path for everyone, but the thing that really helped me to get under the hood and unlock some of that was very careful and planned use of psychedelics. Um, I was fortunate enough to know somebody who had left the church years earlier, who sort of um, found a lot of utility in this and who sort of guided me through this process of finding a safe place and doing some preparation in advance and learning about that stuff that I couldn't really access consciously that I needed to sort of loosen the grip on on my active management of myself every day and let some stuff kind of float to the surface and that was when I started to get a handle on my depression and my shame and my guilt and to accept that there were things about how I was raised that I was still pretty determined to see as positive because it touched on things that my parents had taught me and I had I had stayed pretty determined not to blame my parents about anything that happened to me in the church because they tried and they were generally good parents And so Mm -hmm. some of the scarier feelings of admitting some resentment and some anger, but still loving them, um, psychedelics, which is, you know, a growing field in mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of questions about how it works, but not much doubt that it does, um, for a lot of people really was a key step in my journey to realizing there's stuff that I wouldn't even know to look at if I, if I hadn't had that. So I really valued that process. Yeah, that's amazing. I feel like I've had similar experiences just with like using cannabis, frankly, um, being able to get down to those depths and especially like in sort of a meditative space with, you know, with your set and your setting and, um, it brings stuff up to the surface that have been buried 
but in in a safe way, I guess. Yeah, it really does. And I, I think cannabis is another thing that I find a lot of people who leave the church, even more than alcohol, they find a lot of utility in that. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, for some people, those are recreational. And I don't think that's a bad thing. For me, it's never been, you know, like, oh, I'm going to go to a party and have some weed. It's more like, I'm feeling contemplative tonight, or I just need to kind of unwind a little bit and kind of let my thoughts go wherever they're going to go. And I find it really useful to do that in a way that wasn't easy for me uh, for the first three decades of my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I still kind of feel like a little bit of shame. Like if I have a gummy and I, I'm, I'm a little bit like you, like, I feel like I want to use it when I'm, when I feel like I have a purpose, like, like what you said, feeling con contemplative, contemplative, um, you know, that's yeah. kind of what I'm going for is, you know, I want to reach that meditative space and really kind of dig and, um, and it's been just invaluable. And, but I, 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 I feel kind of like embarrassed using this stuff or like kind of guilty. Cause it's like, you know, th that, that idea of like sin, like you're not supposed to do that. It, yeah. it discolors your whiteness, you know? Yeah. It there's, it, it runs so deep, doesn't it? It's, it's such a funny thing. Um, I've started to really value when those feelings come up because they do come up less than they did. Uh, but they still do come up for any number of things, you know, when I'm, when I'm in a relationship and I, I have a sexual relationship and I'm not married to that person, th there are still great challenges to me in that I still have a very hard time settling into a relationship where there's the potential for physical and sexual intimacy because it runs so deep that that sin is next to murder. <laughs> yeah. Seriously um, though. Seriously, and so it's, it's had true. to become this thing that I communicate with my partner where I say, you know, sex is amazing. I'm a big fan. It takes me a minute to like get comfortable because there's some wiring in there that I've tried to rewire that mostly is just in there deep. And it's the same with things like cannabis or alcohol. Um, it's, it's a thing where now when I feel those, those twinges of guilt and shame, I kind of value it and say oh there's i know what that is and i know that's an invitation for me to sit with it and to get to the bottom of it and to rename it if i can to call it something besides guilt and shame it's an it's an old phantom feeling that doesn't have any use for me yeah well <clears throat> and even just being able to identify them as emotions like i feel like for me and several people i've spoken to is like if you identify the emotion it makes it real and so like, for me, it's this huge step to even identify the fact that, oh, I am feel I I'm having a beer. I am feeling a little bit guilty about this Absolutely. and to put a name on it. It's, it's hard. It's, I mean, it, if you take a step back and you look at just how much like mind fuckery has happened with the collective yeah. of the group of us who have been in the church and are either on the way out or have left, um, like it's just amazing <laughs> it is and it's i mean that's maybe one of the biggest themes i've seen both in my own personal experience and working with kids at byu and even now in my private practice working with people with faith crises um the church does such a thorough job of making us our own self-police without realizing it we label it as god or as the spirit keeping an eye on us but really it's us policing ourselves and beating ourselves up for things and having that realization really thoroughly and deeply and realizing I am 
holding myself against the wall here and mm -hmm. I can see where it came from, but I also have the power, you know, even though it's not easy and it might take a while, I have the capacity to let myself off the hook here and to be kind to myself where I used to be cruel or where I was taught to be cruel to myself. Um, I think that could be really powerful. Yeah, that's, that is amazing. So would you say that like where you are on your journey right now, like, would you say, oh, I'm healed, you know, like you, you, you found the psychedelics, you found some things that work for you and it's like a switch went off, or would you say you're like still on the, the journey somewhere? You know, there are just things that are surprising around every corner. I think a year ago, I would have said, I think 10 years was kind of like what it took and I'm good. Mm -hmm. And then this year, there have been things that come up as I've watched my children individually decide to leave the church. I had these weird twinges that were very uncomfortable for me, where in my head, I really valued that I waited until I was 30. And I made the decision when I was very informed and I'd served a mission. And I realized I was really proud of some of the things that I'd done in the church. You know, I don't think it's bad to be proud of some of those things, but right. I started feeling... Um, frustrated that my kids were rejecting it so easily I was like no 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 you haven't like fully and like experienced it yet you have to reject it after you experience it I didn't say that but I had that feeling and I didn't want to have it and so I've had to struggle within myself about I wanted more than anything for my kids not to follow this path and now they're not following it and I find that really scary because they've had other experiences that I wouldn't have that I was too scared to have I was one of those kids mm -hmm. that never drank in high school and didn't have sex until I was married, not because I was a good kid, but because I was terrified to disappoint God, which is not a good reason to not do things. And my right. kids don't have that natural fear. And so they're naturally more curious about things. And I am simultaneously so glad and also just terrified. And so I find that that's a new chapter for me. And I've also found that the conflict I thought I had fully avoided with my family, my parents and my siblings, um, I didn't have it when I left. They were so their knee-jerk reaction was just acceptance and love and you know, we'll never judge you. Mm -hmm. But I had probably the biggest fight I've ever had with my mom about the church just last month. Wow. Um, one of my children came out as non-binary and, right. and is out and asked to use they them pronouns. And my mom bristled at some of it in a way that I wouldn't have expected. Um hmm. still was trying, but there was some friction there that um, brought up some really uncomfortable feelings for me that I didn't know I still had because I really felt like we have a very healthy version of respectfully disagreeing about the church mm -hmm. and we had a full-blown fight that we're still kind of recovering from. And so I think I've sort of learned that I can never stop looking for those little things that are going to come up. I'm sure as I get older and I start to feel my body start to fall apart more, I'm in my forties now and my eyesight's going and, I can feel little twinges of existential terror. Whereas before I used to think, oh, well, I can't wait to go live up in the celestial kingdom with my family where I'm mm -hmm. going to have to grapple with some of that existential dread and the fear of death and, you know, um, whether there's something after this life. So I'm sure there are more chapters to come, but for the most part, it feels like at least I have a language for thinking about it for myself and I'm able mm -hmm. to get under the hood when I need to and sort of self-diagnose and go to therapy when I need and talk to someone as well. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. Do you feel like your 
um, you talked about like the existential crisis and not knowing where you go. Do you feel like you've filled the faith void or the spirituality void in any way? Or do you feel like you're mostly just uh, secular now? Uh, I think that I spent a lot of time wondering what the right way to think about that was. And then that felt like a vestige of Mormonism, like that there's a right answer and I need to find it. And so I think where Mm -hmm. I've settled is really being open to whatever is after. And I think this is a common place. A lot of people end up, I guess it's more agnostic than anything where I would love for there to be a God in whatever form I would love for there to be some kind of purpose or existence after this life. I don't know that spending my energy on finding out what that is, um, is going to be the best use of my time and energy. And so I've, I've found a lot more purpose and comfort in the idea that that makes my time here much more precious. And that whereas before I was good because I was scared, now I need to find different reasons to be good. And if I'm good, it should be because of good reasons and because I care about the world and the people around me and about myself. And I, for me, I find that that's really the only meaningful way to live is to live purposefully because... I choose to and not because of some um, invisible source or invisible force that's watching me or, or judging me or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's beautiful. It, I, I really love that. That sounds a lot like uh like Carl Sagan or Neil deGrasse Tyson, where it's just sure. like, you know, you have this, you have this one life and you don't owe God anything, but you know, we're all made of star stuff all together and you have yeah. one chance at it, so you better make it good. Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing that I think leaves some common ground with religion and Mormonism in its purest form is, you know, you teach that we should be good people. I agree. So mm-hmm. let's focus on the being good people part and not on the chapter and verse stuff. I think that's where we lose our way sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a great way to look at it. Um. Okay. Well, you know what, Kelly, I think we covered all the points that we had talked about before. Do you have anything else that, you know, you, any insights or things that you think would help, you know, my audience on their journey? No, I mean, I think that conversations like this, I really valued this. I mean, this is stuff that I think about in my head, Uh sort of not really, but talking about it with another person, especially someone who's had, you know, some common experiences and who has a, a language for it. It's mm-hmm. just invaluable and irreplaceable. And so anyone listening, I mean, a podcast like this, I think serves such a valuable service and finding people that you can talk to about stuff and not just being in your head, but balancing that out with, you know, finding people that have a conversation to have with you that can be meaningful, I think is, it, it helps me put my thoughts in order. I think I've realized stuff about myself just talking to you today that I found <laughs> helpful. So I think that is... Um, a really great thing. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Uh, well, and I, I, I think, you know, the idea of community and the idea of having friends and having a language for speaking these things, that's exactly what I intend to provide here with this podcast. And um, also, Kelly, I don't know if I told you this, but I have a Facebook group that's meant to accompany the podcast for anyone who wants to join. It's called Health Af- Health Beyond Mormonism Community on Facebook. Oh, cool. Um, and so, you know, I, I'll be running like some little like health challenges, like free, you know, free little health challenges and stuff, but like, just to make a space where we can talk about these things and, um, like in safety, because I feel like a lot of these conversations are just not safe to have in the public sphere. Yeah, I agree. 
Um, yeah, so um, I'm going to be talking about more of this type of stuff on my TikTok. And I know, Kelly, you you throw out some of these topics and things on your TikTok from time to time. I think this is great discourse. And TikTok's a great place to kind of get connected with people. That's how we got connected. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I would also invite you, if you want to, and anyone in the audience, if they want to, to come join my Health Beyond Mormonism community. And, you know, we can have more of these discussions there, too. Absolutely. It's, it's a great yeah, I'm resource. gonna go find it right now. Thank you so much. Right on. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I think that that's it. I think that right. we can wrap. That was awesome. Uh, you did great, Kelly. Thank so, you so much. Everybody, come and find me on Facebook and share the episode if you found it helpful. And please come join the Facebook group and share your takeaways. We'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Kelly Abbott. You can find him on TikTok at Skeletor Johnson. Um, There were so many takeaways here, you guys, the conversations we had around, you know, feeling and allowing your emotions, the connection with mental health, um, his experiences at BYU working with the students. Like this episode was absolute gold. And again, I would like to invite you to join my Facebook community, Health Beyond Mormonism community, and go inside there and share some of your takeaways. There's a whole community of people in there who would just love to chat with you about all things health and ex-Mormonism. And I hope to see you in there. We'll see you next time. Thanks. That's it for this episode of Health Beyond Mormonism. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share it with someone you love. Search, ponder, and pray about what you learned today. Come find me on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and return and report. We'll see you guys next time.